Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f? Are you talking about you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to vent their spleen about history and myth. The podcast where we get to tunnel through the nonsense to the home run of truth. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here with Head of the Escape Committee, Kyle Glover. Hello. And this week, dear Ragers, we're back to the Second World War, but very much sitting it out. Or are we? Because this week we are joined to make a home run by historian and podcaster presenter of the For You, The War Is Over podcast, Dave Robertson. Dave, welcome to History Rage. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Good. Feeling angry? Absolutely. I'm Scottish. Of course I feel angry. (laughs) Right then. Well, just don't get violent. (laughs) I'll try my best. So I've been a listener to For You, The War Is Over for some time now, being somewhat of an escape nut myself. Um, I even went following one of your episodes where you talked about getting um, like a hundred, I think it was 25 metres worth of Red Cross parcel string. And I'd, I went away and did that and made a rope out of it. And it, I think I sent you the pictures. Yes, you my did. My moment, yeah. <laughs> um, but, so I know a little bit of the background, but can you give our angry mob of ragers an insight into you, your background, and how you got in the podcast game? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I, I've always been gripped by Second World War history. Um, my dad actually grew up during the war. He was 51 when I was born. And so he was a young lad, uh, sort of five to 10 years old during the war. And so I always grew up uh, listening to his stories of his childhood, watching Spitfires fly over and uh, tales of the lone bomber of Perthshire and all this sort of stuff. For those who don't know, the city of Perth in Scotland was bombed once and it was in a pig field. So <laughs> I I always grew up with these stories. Um, and when it came to university, studied history, always shamelessly did all the Second World War modules and eventually came around to doing a master's. And in that master's, I, again, focused on the Second World War history, but specifically on Second World War prisoner of war escapes. So that's how it really kicked off in terms of my academic background. I've since gone on and started a doctorate on it. However, my, my love of prisoner of war escapes long predates any academic interest uh, because I was watching the documentary when I was about eight or nine years old when I was with my dad. 
and it was on The Great Escape. And he, at the end of it, he told me, did you know that one of the great escapers was from a place called Octor Arda, just 10 miles down the road from where I was growing up? Hmm. And, of course, I had no idea. find that fascinating um, because it's a very famous story and it's a very niche angle. And, of course, this uh, great escaper was Sandy Gunn. And for those of you who are interested in uh, some of the wider stuff that Tony and I do beyond For You, The War Is Over, the Spitfire AA810 project is something we're both very involved in, and Sandy Gunn is a central part of that story. So I've always known that story, always been interested in the Second World War, Prisoner War escapes. And so the two came together very nicely in terms of my childhood interest. And I'd read all the books. My dad had all the books. He had them from his own childhood. So he had the things like The Wooden Horse, Coldest Story, uh, Stolen yeah. Journey, and uh, The Great Escape Itself by Paul Brickhill. And so when it came to doing the doctorate, it all came together very nicely in terms of the personal interest, but also the academic interest. In terms of the podcast, how that came about was after I'd uh, taken my step back from the PhD, and a friend of mine, chatting to a friend of mine, he basically said... Uh, it'd make a great podcast. Why don't you do a podcast where every episode is a different escape? And it never occurred to me, but I thought it was a great idea. So I went and spoke to my friend Dave, uh, who was in AV, worked in AV for the Royal Society, and he had always said he wanted to do a podcast with no idea what to do it on. I had no idea how to do a podcast, but I had an idea. So we teamed up uh, together and started For You, The War Is Over. For those who are familiar with our history, sadly, Dave did pass away of COVID um, midway through recording our second series. However, I, I felt I felt it was right both as a friend and as a collaborator, if you like, to continue on what we'd started. Yeah, Tony had been a guest in our first series. He had his own knowledge, background, interest in the subject matter, and it was a very natural fit for Tony to come in and continue continue legacy but you know david being central to the establishment of the podcast and he's still he is still to this day very central to what we do you know he was a very close friend of of mine first and foremost uh, long before we started the podcast together and so he's very much not forgotten he knew tony as well he had met him several times and they got on very well together so he's still very central to what we do and very much remembered by by those of us who do it how long may that live on Absolutely. Yeah, he was a, he was a great guy, lovely guy as well. Well, let's get into let's get into history Reg, and try and lift the spirits a little bit if I uh, if I may. So, absolutely. You've you mentioned that you'd listened to Guy Walter's episode in the background too in kind of training for this. So, you know the framework. Dave, with all the emotion that you feel it warrants, would you please tell our baying mob of history ragers what do you wish people would just Get over. So my rage today is that everything we think we know about prisoner war escapes is wrong. And it's predominantly because most of our knowledge comes from films such as The Cold It's Story, The Wooden Horse, and of course, The Great Escape. Okay. Yeah, The Great Escape is getting some stick from History Rage now. We have the second second episode on Prisoner of War Escapes and the second one where The Great Escape has got it in the face. (laughs) (laughs) So just uh, before we get into the questions then, just kind of expand a bit on that, if you would. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So first and foremost, I love the film. It's a great fun film. And it's um, Second World War, Prisoner of War Escapes. Let's be honest, it's niche. So to have one of the most famous films ever made 
on our subject matter. It's, it's an absolute gift. I don't know if you guys are into football, but it's a bit like having George Weah playing for Liberia. I mean, Liberian national football team is not up to much, really, but they had one of the best players in the world. And it just, you know, it, it's we have one of the greatest films ever made that captures the imagination of the subject matter of Second War, Prison of War Escapes. So, yeah. I love the film. However, it is a complete misrepresentation of the escape narrative as a whole. Not just that escape, then. It's the escape narrative in its entirety. Absolutely. And I would actually expand even farther than that because I would even include films like The Cold at Story, The Wooden Horse, um, some of the other you know great films about Second World War escapes but in and of themselves are misrepresenting the escape narrative as a whole. And there is a reason for this. But before I cover that, I actually want to ask you guys a question, if that's all right. Okay, far away. Standing by, Kyle. Yep. So how do you think a typical prisoner of war escape looked like? Where was it from and who was doing it? Okay, now I'm in the trade, as it were. So I'm going to throw this at you, Kyle. I'll go first, yeah. Okay, I'm... Just going from what I've seen like from films and commando comics and that kind of thing, a load of posh officer types going, wouldn't it be a cracking wheeze if we dug a tunnel with teaspoons or something along those lines? Paul, do you want to have a go? Okay, I'm going to, I'm not necessarily basing this on knowledge because, like I say, I've looked at the great ones. I would say, as an educated guess, opportunistic escape done by a pole is probably the average that I would go with. Interesting. So, I would say that Kyle's description is closer to the average perception of the yeah. typical escape. In that it's it's jolly hockey sticks, it's posh officer types digging a tunnel out of a camp that's surrounded by barbed wire and guards and dogs, etc. However, the majority of escapes were not by tunnel. They were not from a camp, and they were not made by officers. Well, that turns it on its head, doesn't it? Well, it yeah, well, does yeah, well that's, that's told me, hasn't it? <laughs> so, what is, well, what is the typical escape, then, that, that we're looking at? So, I, w- I will come to that, but I, I think it's worth caveating things slightly here, because there actually should be more more of an academic debate just getting to the academia of it, but there should be more of an academic debate about the numbers who actually escaped. So MI9, who were the intelligence organization who were responsible for aiding escape and evasion of prisoners of war and evaders throughout the Second World War, they claim that they helped round about 30,000 to escape or evade. And this, this figure has been bandied about. It's in uh, Foot and Langley's book. It is repeated in a number of other books. I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong. However, I've never actually seen a file that backs it up. What I have seen is round about 3,000 escape and evasion reports, which are MI9 reports and cover the entirety of the war, include all the famous ones and many that are not even slightly known. And I can't find any major gaps in them, but 3,000 to 30,000 is quite a big discrepancy. So I don't know if there's just a random couple of zeros added in somewhere or whether there just is no one figure or other is wrong. However, any statistics that I do have, and this is the basis of my research, 
is on the basis of their escape reports that I have. So I can tangibly verify the figures and statistics that I have in that sense. So I'm going to be using the 3,000 figure rather than the 30,000 figure. But I think there is some academic debate that needs to go on around that. But that's for another, maybe for another rage. Yeah. So to give some context to the, if you like, stereotypical escape that took place, only 5% of all escapes were through a tunnel. That does rise to about 11% if you only look at camp-based escapes. But camp-based escapes only represent around about 40% of all escapes. Right. So the majority of escapes actually took place from outside a camp. Now, that might mean that it was a hospital or a train or in the vast majority of cases, actually, or in the largest number of cases while escaping while on a march. So quite literally, not closer to what you said, which was an opportunistic legate, essentially. And in terms of officers, only around about 23% of escapes were made by officers. Well, I suppose the, I mean, far more than 77% of prisoners are going to be other ranks, aren't they? Exactly. So it, it is a disproportionate representation in that sense. But you're right, it, it, um, it's NCOs and other ranks that actually make up the majority of escapes. And and so our perception is grossly misrepresented in terms of how we understand the reality versus the perception. But there is a reason for that, or at least there's a reason that I argue it exists. And that's because our perceptions come predominantly from films. Yep. So, as I said, The Great Escape, The Coldest Story and The Wooden Horse are probably the three biggest films that have been made on this subject matter. There are a number of other ones, Von Ryan's Express, Dalek 17, Albert RN, uh, and a fantastic comedy called Very Important Person, which I absolutely love. And uh, my own personal favourite escape film is actually Chicken Run. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Of course. It's a classic. <laughs> it's, it, it is. I, it's a, I think it's a great film. Well, uh, genuinely one of my favourite, not, not just escape films, but films. But if, if we accept that our general perception of Second World War and Second World War escapes in particular comes from these three films, then essentially we're basing our entire knowledge on five books, which is The Coldest Story by Pat Reed, They Have Their Exits by Erin Eve, The Wooden Horse and Stolen Journey by Eric Williams and Oliver Philpott, respectively, and then finally The Great Escape by Paul Brickhill itself. So in essence, this, the entirety of our knowledge of prisoner war escapes, and by extension, prisoner war life, is on the basis of three films and five books, which were written by five men, which does not, with the best will in the world, represent the 300,000 plus prisoners of war throughout the entirety of the war. And more pertinently to that is all five of these men were officers. And there's a further reason for that, which is post-war, it was the officers who had the time, money and contacts in order to A, write up their book and then B, get it published. Because the majority of NCOs and other ranks were from lower middle class to working class yeah. backgrounds. And so they just returned to their jobs after the after the war. And you often hear, in, in, if I may uh, plug for you, the war is over, you often hear in our episodes, we will say for the... Um, junior ranks will often say there's nothing more we know about them because they just return to their jobs and that's it. They don't crop up again. They didn't write books. They didn't stand for parliament. They didn't do all of this stuff. 
And so there's yeah, very they just little. Just went back we... to being a brass caster in in a Birmingham factory, didn't they? It, exactly, or or working in dockyards or or whatever. And so, because they didn't write these books, the narrative as we know it didn't come from the broad spectrum of prisoners of war. It came from a very narrow spectrum. Now, I, I'm by yeah. no means a class warrior. That just doesn't interest me as a person, particularly. I'll be honest. It's just I don't find social history particularly interesting, but. The point is, our perception comes from basically five people, and all of them were for the same background. Even even without that, you do have to acknowledge these are where the sources are coming from. This is a distinct element within the sources we have. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It's um, you know the 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 sources in terms of the reports that we use for our podcast are across the spectrum. You know, it covers all ranks. I'll grant you the officer reports tend to be beefier. And in fairness, that is typically because officers were more trained on things like intelligence gathering, because ultimately MI Nine was an intelligence organization, so they were trying to they were the interrogations were designed to gather intelligence, and therefore they tended to get better intelligence from the officers because they've been trained for that sort of thing. So the reports for the officers do tend to be beefier, and therefore more detailed, but. The, the sources themselves do come across the spectrum. You quite often do get, you know, students or laborers, farm workers, quite common. What sort of challenges do escapers face then? What, what are they up against? And what do we not take into account when we think of the popular perception of an escape attempt? Great question. So part of my, if you like, academic interest in this subject matter is I wanted to I wanted to make the concept and understanding of escapes a bit more systematic and almost scientific in its analysis. And so I think that helps us better understand the, the answer to that question, because if you look at escapes as a whole, there were basically two aspects of any escape. Now, whether this is inside a camp, a hospital, a prison, train, whatever, or even on a march, it is in that these two aspects can essentially be summarized as either the get out or the getaway. So the get out is getting out of the camp. Let's use camps as a as the standard example because that's the best understanding of an escape. So let's just stick with camps for the sake of argument. So the first aspect is getting out of the camp itself. So that can basically be boiled down and was boiled down by the prisoners themselves into three different concepts, which is under, over, or through. So you either go under the wire, over the wire, or through the wire. If you like, in essence, the first challenge that escapers faced was the wire. You know, you, you had security, you had guards, you had barbed wire, you had two, two strands of barbed wire. In fact, you had the trip wire and you quite often had dogs. So there was extensive security keeping them in. And as I say, they, they had these three concepts and how to get out of them. But getting out was actually the easy part almost, because once you're out, you've then got to travel several hundred, if not thousands of miles to then get to a neutral country or a safe place. So once you're actually out, you then have to get away. And like this Pat brings... Reed was 400 miles, wasn't he, to, to the Swiss border? Yes, yeah, that'd be correct. And I will come to Switzerland later. Yeah. But that's only, in, in, in Pat Reed's case, Switzerland is, is almost the full story. Um, but for most that reach Switzerland, it was only, actually only half the story, but we'll come to that. So even once you're out, you've got to go cross-country, whether on foot or by train or on bike, ship for getting across seas. And 
So these were, if you like, the, the challenges you faced in terms of concept. But the reality of that, of the actual challenge was actually resources and the sourcing of resources. Because, of course, if you're in a prisoner or camp, you can't just pop along to the shops to get what you need. And so theft and bribery did definitely play a part of the camp guards particularly using the resources that they were able to get hold of through the Red Cross parcels, which, of course, the average German population actually did not. So they didn't have access to coffee, chocolate, sugar, mm. etc. And so they were able to use these rarities to, as I say, bribe quite often. But that was not the only uh, source of resources that they had. I mentioned the MI9 earlier. They're actually very central to the escape narrative, but I've been entirely left out of the escape narrative for a number of different reasons. One is they were an intelligence organization and had absolutely no interest in their story being told in the same way that MI6 files to this day are still restricted. MI9 files, they're starting to be released, but a number of them still are restricted to this day. And so there wasn't a desperate desire by the intelligence forces after the war for their story to be told. In fact, they restricted the publication of some books in some cases but they are central to the escape narrative because they were pumping resources into these camps. They were smuggling stuff left, right, and center. And the the story of the smuggling efforts of maps, compasses, dyes, inks, uh, forgeries, the works, is it's a fascinating story in its own right. But what essentially we have is these all these resources being sent into the camp and then being utilized. And I know we'll come to the escape committee later. They're central to this. So in a sense, in essence, you've got theft and bribery, but also smuggling and systematic smuggling. On top of that, you're trying to escape all while looking inconspicuous. So you, you don't want the German guards to notice you're do- what you're doing. So you have mm-hmm. to assimilate one way or another. Now, whether that's them not noticing a tunnel or you're trying to you're trying to go over the wire, which in essence, you're essentially making yourself a target by cl- trying to climb over a wire or else you're trying to go through the main gate, in which case you definitely don't want to get noticed because the whole ruse is that you're dressed in disguise, you're trying to blag your way through using a foreign language and probably passes and papers and all this sort of stuff. So you had the, the challenge of getting out, and then on top of that, you've got the security, as I mentioned, uh, whether they're being guarded while in transit or in the camp itself, and then once out of the camp, the security systems that were implemented by the Germans. So what, even once you're out, they were starting to send out the equivalent of the Home Guard, even the Boy Scouts, all this sort of stuff to to look for you. And then finally, geography. Geography was arguably one of the biggest challenges that they faced, whether that was mountains or just sheer covering long distances. I mean, mm. occupied Europe is... It's one of the smaller continents, but I think it is the smallest continent, but you're still covering hundreds of miles as a base requirement in order to escape, successfully escape. It's pretty big if you've got to walk across it, isn't it? It, Exactly, which in and of itself is a further resource, because if you're walking, you then require extra energy and extra food. And, you know, prisoners of war, as much as they had the Red Cross parcels on their side the basic rations that they had were only there to stave off starvation. So the Red Cross parcels only really topped that up. So if you're then having to deny yourself access to Red Cross parcels purely to feed yourself while on an escape, that in and of itself is a challenge, both a a mental challenge to deprive yourself, but also to then not waste it once you're out. You mentioned, you briefly hit on escape committees and said that we'll come to it. So so let's come to that then, because 
part of that narrative that that you see through the films, the books, and everything like that is you get this concept of the escape committee as this stuffy, quintessentially British bureaucratic institution that that just gets in the way of people escaping. That whole permission to escape the camp. But what's the escape committee's real role? So the escape committee effectively served two major functions. I mean, there were other angles to it, but essentially two major functions. First was the coordination of escape efforts. So while I understand what you mean about the permission to escape and getting in people's way, ultimately what you don't want is two or three tunnels trying to break from the same location, competing for resources and ultimately drawing the attention of the guards. Because instead of having one tunnel that might succeed, you've got three tunnels that will definitely fail. So they were there to adjudicate on the viability of an escape. Mm-hmm. And then if they thought it was viable, make sure it didn't compete with another escape attempt. And then finally, if if they met those requirements, to actually provide the resources required to enable that escape. Now, going back to MI9, the escape committee essentially acted as a conduit for the contraband they were smuggling into the camps. So it was the escape committee's job to gather it all together and then redistribute it for the escapes that were taking place. So in that sense, they were actually pulling and resourcing, basically. you know, mm-hmm. Sharing of resources and then distributing them fairly to the ones that they, in their estimation, stood the best chance of success. They were also there to help filter out the more insane ideas. And with the best one in the world, prisoners of war are bored, behind wire, and in the officer's case, very, very little to do. And so they must have been cooking up some absolute crackpot schemes. As I say, with the best one in the world, there's no doubt that was definitely happening. So they were there to... Do you have any examples? Uh, Well, not really, no, because uh, they they were hopefully filtered out early on. Uh, And equally, when you consider some of the attempts that did succeed you have to really wonder at some of the more crazier ones that didn't make the filter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, they, they basically were there to filter out the crazy ideas, stop competition of escapes, and distribute resources both fairly, but also to help enable the ones that had the best chance of success. And in doing so, effectively act as a conduit for the resources that MI9 were also sharing with them. And I always go back to it. Theft and bribery was absolutely an aspect. It's mm-hmm. just I've, I've always felt that MI9 have been removed completely from the escape narrative and I feel they need to be reinserted in there because they definitely played a part. Yeah, I've um, seen kind of photographs for the Imperial War Museum archive of some of the MI9 parcels that were going in. And, and I think the great genius is that they they sent these things in in suitcases Yes, like yeah, arguably the, the most useful thing an escaper <laughs> could need. The the stuff that they did was it was absolutely fantastic and utterly ingenious. I mean, they they were um, smuggling them inside Monopoly boards inside. Yeah, I mean, I'm from Leeds. I grew up in the spiritual home there, ne- pretty much next door to the Waddingtons factory. Exactly, where, where that and that, that's out. precisely where they did it. And you know, a Monopoly board just stuff with. Reichmarks and contraband and maps and all this sort of thing. I mean, I'd love to see one of them, wouldn't you? Yeah, I don't think we ever will. I believe no. they're all destroyed just in case we needed to use the same ruse with the Russians. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Sadly. Sadly. <laughs> 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Speaking of Monopoly... um. Particularly in film, as we have already discussed, um, escaping is often portrayed as a kind of game, something to pass away the time almost, uh, particularly amongst officers. Um, how does it differ between ranks? What sort of danger, how dangerous is it actually to take part in escape, both in the planning and once you're actually out of wherever you're being held? So the Geneva Convention is key to understanding this as it effectively provided the dividing line between officers and NCOs and other ranks. And by extension, it effectively enabled this game concept, but I will come to that. So the Geneva Convention stated that, as I'm sure you're aware, NCOs and other ranks could be used for manual labour. Pardon me, manual labour, so long as it wasn't to support the war effort. Now, that line was always quite fudged but blurry at best yeah very very blurry at best but let's fudge over that ourselves for the time being and of course by by extension officers were not required to work so this creates a situation whereby you have NCOs and other ranks without the time or resources to actually plan their escape but with the freedom relative freedom because they were leaving the camp on a daily basis in order to try and enable an escape On the flip side, you've got officers who have the time and resources to plan their escape to the nth degree, but without, but with far greater security surrounding them and therefore making the actual part of the escape itself much more difficult. So in effect, looking at the officers first in this game concept, the officers were bored. And so they had the time to treat it as a sport and they did. And there's, there's a number of reasons for this, which is, A, it kept them busy and kept their minds busy. But on top of that, and coming to the danger side of things, by and large, it wasn't a particularly risky game, if you like. It wasn't a risky sport. Because if you were recaptured, the typical punishment was a couple of weeks in the cooler. And across, across the board, that is entirely the case. And I come back to The Great Escape on this one because, and I I don't mean the film, but I just mean Mm -hmm. the story of The Great Escape has completely misconstrued the reality of the risk of the typical escape. Now, I am aware that laws changed, orders were made throughout as the war progressed, which did increase the risk factor. 
But, and this is where I actually differed slightly on Guy Walters on something, which was the culpability of Roger Bushel. Now, I'm not saying that Roger didn't have some uh, questions to answer, but ultimately, the POWs were supposed to be protected by the Geneva Convention. It was the Germans who disrespected the Geneva Convention. It wasn't Roger Bushel. So on that one, I do give him a little bit of a pass. Now, Guy may disagree with me on this one, but... Ultimately, it wasn't it wasn't him who betrayed the Geneva Convention. It certainly wasn't him that pulled yeah. the trigger and fired the bullet into the back of their neck during, as he called it, a pinkle pipe. Yeah. So there is a definite misconception about the risk factor. Now, don't get me wrong. There were risks involved in it, but the majority of escaped prisoners were not shot. They were returned to camps and punted into the cooler for a couple of weeks. And the worst they really faced was a stretch in the cooler, yeah. in reality allowing for the caveat of orders coming in, but those orders were extrajudicial, if you like, and certainly broke the rules of the Geneva Convention. So that's very much on the Nazis. In terms of the dangers, if you like, the dangers were certainly things like maybe a tunnel collapsing or being shot by a guard while escaping, but that was generally accepted as a reasonable risk and security factor, if you like, you know, the guards are armed. If you try to escape, they are entitled to at least, they typically would fire off a warning shot, and then if you didn't stop then, they would then aim to kill. As I say, that was generally accepted as fair game. You knew knew the rules, that's what was going to happen. So that was a risk, but in reality, you could back down. On top of that, once you were out... There was obviously also always the risk that you might be at the wrong end of a shotgun if you were hiding in a barn or something like that. But I would actually say that airmen who were escaping had uh, the greatest level of risk because of the Terraflieger. And and again, Guy talked about this, whereby the attitude towards airmen in particular had changed to the point that they were loath, utterly despised. And there were certainly stories of um, airmen coming down by parachute and, quite frankly, being lynched. Um, certainly not treated under the rules of the Geneva Convention. So there, look, there were dangers that they faced. There were risks that they faced. But it's not, it's not what people perceive it to be. And that perception again stems from the Great Escape. But that's not a criticism yeah. of the film. That's just, if you like, the reality of this very famous story, which to a greater or lesser extent, everyone knows. And certainly everyone knows that there was 50 murders at the end of it. Tragic mm-hmm. murders, but there was 50 murders at the end of it. So they almost make that link in their head. But the it's a with the best one in the world, it's a gross misrepresentation of the dangers that they actually face. Because by and large, if you escaped, you were probably going to be returned to your camp and you're probably going to spend the best part of a month in the cooler. But that would be about it. Is that the same for like other ranks then? Because we've covered officers there. In terms of punishment, yes. And in terms of risks and dangers, yes, absolutely. What In terms of was it a game, less so for them. And this almost comes back to the duty to escape concept. And this is definitely one of my rages. In fact, I, I definitely, I, I will go way beyond Guy Walters on my rage on duty to escape because it was utter nonsense. Uh, it was just complete and utter bollocks, yeah. basically. <laughs> Guy said it himself, there is nothing in the King's regulations that states you had a duty to escape. 
where I think this comes from, and I, I pitched this theory to Helen and she agreed with me, or at least said it wasn't completely cracker, so I'll take that as a, large a agree- uh, largely in agreement. You, usually, yeah. So my theory is that, again, yeah. I think this comes from MI9. So MI9 made a very, very conscious effort to, in, to encourage an escape mindedness amongst servicemen on the assumption that when, if and when they became prisoners of war, they would then maintain this escape mindedness. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, that's that's perfectly fair because that was ultimately what they were there to do. So they created this escape-mindedness and this was taken on board as a concept of the duty to escape. But there was absolutely no duty to escape whatsoever. And actually credit to MI9 that we still consider this to be a central tenet of the escape narrative is that there was a duty to escape. They clearly did their job well because 70 to 80 years later, we are still considering this to be central to the escape narrative. But it was utter nonsense. There was no such duty to escape. Yeah, we still consider it to be the first duty of a prisoner. Exactly. And it, it absolutely was not. So duty to escape almost created this concept of it as a game, as a sport, because because they had developed this escape-mindedness, they then therefore... Certainly amongst the officers, they thought, well, I'm bored. I have nothing to do. I have this duty to escape. Therefore, I will escape. And so they did treat it like a game. They treated it like a sport. And and for the majority of the war, I think that is probably a fair estimation of their approach to it. As Mm -hmm. things progressed throughout the war, and this is, I say that in the context of largely in camps, because as I say, most escapes did not take place in camps. Nearly half of all escapes that took place throughout the entirety of the war happened in the last final six months of 1940. So from June to December 1940, nearly half of all escapes of the entirety of the war took place during then. That that's quite early on. Yeah, but it actually go it actually reinforces some of MI9's advice, which was that the earlier you attempt to escape, the better your chances were. So in late 1940, or at least the second half of 1940, prisoner war camp system wasn't really in existence, not as we know it in, say, 42, mm-hmm. 43, whereby you've, you've got those barbed wire, guard towers, guards, dogs, huts on stilts, the works. That system didn't really exist as we know it in 1940. They had some rudimentary converted schools and that sort of thing, but... So the majority of escapes at that point was actually when they were marching back to Germany from France or the Low Countries, and they were just legging it. They were just running away, taking their opportunity from this massive, you know, you had maybe twenty German guards for ten thousand prisoners. You had plenty of opportunity to make a dash for it, and many did. Speaking of making a run for it, if I say I was a British soldier, cap part of, say, say I was captured at Dunkirk. How would I go about escaping? What's the ideal, talking ideal way of escaping, if you could get away with it? So I return to what I said a moment ago about how the advice was to escape early. So escape is a bit like the old saying on uh, voting, which is escape early and escape often. (laughs) So the earlier you can get away, the better. And in fact, the best thing you can do is avoid being captured at all. So there were actually more evasions than there were escapes throughout the entirety of the war. I think the ratio was about two, three to one, something like that. So significantly more evasions than there were escapes. 
But in terms of escape, and once you've been captured, the earlier you can do it, the better. Because once they've got you into a camp, whether that's an officer's camp or other ranks camp, the security is significantly better. So the earlier you can get away, the better. However, I'm going to make a certain assumption or that this question is maybe, if you like, having dealt with being captured at Dunkirk, let's assume you've made it to a camp. Because that's where the real fun comes yeah, in. Let's go with that. So, so if I were in a camp and you were to say, how would I escape? What is the perfect or dream escape? The very, very first thing I would do is learn German. Now, I am useless at languages. I cannot learn a language to save my life. I have tried German, French, Spanish. Likewise. Not my 40. I can barely speak English. <laughs> uh, so, so, sounds like we're all on the same page. Nonetheless, you have the time. On, ha- on your hands. Because th- this is the other big thing that we kind of forget about prisoners of war, because if I was put into jail now for committing a crime in the UK, I'd be told I have, let's say, five years. And you know at the end of those five years, you're out again. But at no stage did those prisoners of war know when they would get out. You didn't know when that war would end. You didn't know when you'd be liberated. You didn't... So, so it's, it's an interminable sentence, in effect. So... Yeah. But you have time on your side. And that, I think, is actually a big driver in what made them want to escape is the fact that they actually didn't know when it might end. So, mm-hmm. so it's not just the boredom factor, it's the interminability of it, if you like. But because you've got time in your hands, I would 100% learn the language because assimilation is key. If you can communicate in German, you've, you've almost won half the battle here. The other thing I'd do is I'd go through the gate I'd then get a train out of the immediate vicinity. I'd get a bike and cycle for as far as I can. I'd then join an escape line and I'd head to Spain. Now, that would be the perfect sequence, in my opinion, of how to make an escape. However, I want before I explain why, I want to look at the alternatives. I said I would go through the gate. So the alternatives are, as I said earlier, over, under, through. So a tunnel, long and slow. Plenty of time to be found. You've got the challenge of the dispersal of spoil, which is a dead giveaway. So if even a drop of sand is spotted, the Germans instantly know that a tunnel's taking place. You might need bedboards for shoring up, so that's a drain on resources. And you also need digging implements. I'm also six foot five. So (laughs) (laughs) the prospect of me getting into a tunnel and being able to crawl to the end of a 300 foot long tunnel just doesn't appeal to me whatsoever. So I would avoid a tunnel like the plague. Over. Barbed wire and armed guards within metres of you. I mean, quite frankly, going over the wire sounds like a wonderful excuse to act as target practice for board guards while trying to overcome barbed wire. I mean, it just does not appeal whatsoever. And actually, do you know what? I have to give full credit to the Warburg wire job because they find a wonderful solution to what sounds like one of the worst ways of escaping which is if you're not familiar with it we haven't covered it in the podcast yet and we will do but if you're not familiar with it basically what they did was they created an instrument whereby they threw a ladder up against the wire and it was there was a join at the top so that essentially the uh, board flipped over and went across the top of the two strands of wire so all they had to do is run up the ladder run across the board and jump down on the other side this was all done at night and they short-circuited the entire camp 
So they managed to get, I think it was over nearly 30 POWs, or they managed to get around about 30 POWs out in one fell swoop, and a fair number of them actually got home. So for what sounds like one of the worst ways of escaping, they find a very, very neat solution. So I I give full credit to the Warburg Wire job because that, that was a great solution to that particular option. There was one other alternative through, because I said I would go through the gate. The alternative through is cutting the wire. Some POWs did actually describe this as the single most harebrained solution to escape of the lot. Um, Because in effect, you had to, first of all, cross the trip wire. You then needed wire cutters. You needed distractions for the guards, dogs, and ferrets. And then once all of that is, um, once you've done all of that and cut through two strands of barbed wire, you then have guards patrolling on the other side, all in you know, open space. So the guards are armed. So I'd go through the gate because if you're captured, you just put your hands up and you walk away. I would also go through the gate because having spent all that time learning German, I don't want it to go to waste. So having then got out, I said I'd go by train to get immediately out of the vicinity. I'd get a bike and then I'd join an escape line. So again, I'm going to look at the alternatives. If you travel by foot, it's slow. It's very hard to get out of the immediate vicinity and it requires additional food and actually fitness, which is a major challenge if you're undernourished and in a camp with nothing to do. You're also potentially reliant on civilian help who are under threat of extermination if they're caught helping you. Alternatively, you could try a train, but that required money, papers and and command of the language. On top of that, you could also try staying in hotels if you're travelling around by uh, train. And again, on, on For You, The War Is Over, we talk quite a lot about traveling by train and hotel because it's all about assimilation but again that required money papers and language this is all drain on resources that you have finally i said i'd join an escape line and head to spain so the challenge of the escape line was, of course they weren't advertising so you didn't know where they were you had to almost stumble upon them but if you could stumble upon them it was great because that mi9 were basically there to support you and get you home the reason i go to spain so looking at the alternative locations, you've got Sweden, but a ship crossing across the Baltic Sea is not for the faint-hearted, and docks were rarely easily accessible. So having just left a secure barbed wire location with armed guards, you're now trying to break back into one in order to then get on a ship, which is guarded, and then cross a sea, yeah. typically in a bilge or coal bunker, in which case it's not a particularly pleasant crossing at the best times. Alternatively, you've got Switzerland, but even with Switzerland... Switzerland's landlocked, so there's no route out, and you certainly weren't going to be flying back from Switzerland. So you actually, actually what you had to do was re-enter occupied France and travel down to Spain. So Switzerland wasn't the end goal. You had to then keep going. So mm-hmm. Pat Reed was slightly different because he did stay in Switzerland. But in Airy Neve's case and many others, they actually had to re-enter occupied France and keep going down to Spain and get back via Gibraltar. Another alternative was Russia. But to reach that, you had to make your way through the Eastern Front, which, I mean, even Germans didn't want to go there. So (laughs) (laughs) you certainly did not want to try and make your escape through the Eastern Front. I mean, it's just not tempting whatsoever. And even if you did make it through, the communists weren't exactly a welcoming bunch, even to their allies, and often treated escape POWs appallingly. I mean, we covered this fairly recently in the escapes of Easterbrook Man and Richards, whereby they were effectively put back in prison until there was intervention by the British legation. Then Italy. Italy was a completely different kettle of fish due to the armistice in 1943. There was a stay-put order where they were told to stay in their camps. 
on the assumption that the advancing line would come and liberate them and catch up with them, essentially. However, as we know, the advance through Italy was painfully slow, and what you actually ended up with was thousands of POWs roaming around what was now occupied Italy, and so you had Germans rounding them up and all this sort of stuff. So I wouldn't go near Italy either. So in effect, you might as well just go straight to Spain. So having done all that, there are still challenges of, of all that, and it all comes down to resources. Because language takes time and commitment. Getting through the gate needs a disguise, a pass, and again, to have mastered the language. Getting on the train requires money, papers, language, and disguise. A bike requires theft, which is actually the easiest part of the entire thing. But you were still beholden to domestic law, so you could be prosecuted for theft. So you could actually end up in a domestic prison for theft of a bike. Even though you were, so the yeah. Geneva Convention didn't protect you from domestic, breaking domestic law, it just protected you theoretically from extrajudicial punishment from the Germans. Yeah. And then finally, food and drink, you need that for all uh, options. But of all the options available to you, that to me would be the best because learn the language, go through the gate, blag your way through using your newly learned skill, get a train out of the vicinity because getting away quickly was hugely to your advantage because you could effectively get out of the cordon of security. Yeah, I suppose if they throw up a 50-mile net around that camp, if you happen to be 55 miles away from it when they do that... You've got a huge advantage. And also, it gives you a better chance of getting away farther away before you were noticed missing. We talked a lot about German and Italian camps in Europe so far, and we, to be fair as well, we do see our fair share of escape from British camps that the uh, Germans yep. do. Hat tip bridge end. <laughs> we do see very few escapes from the camps in the Far East, though. And like briefly, what are the major different challenges that are going to be faced by somebody trying to escape the Japanese? Yeah, yeah, there was definitely significantly less escapes taking place in the Far East couple of reasons for this. Uh, first and foremost, conditions in the camp. So we know all, only too well that they were treated appallingly and often not in a good enough condition, physical condition, to even attempt mm-hmm. an escape. On top of that, you've got terrain. So it's alien terrain to which, to be brutally honest, we as Westerners are not typically familiar. And in weather conditions that we are certainly not typically suited. I mean, I know I certainly struggle in any form of humidity and heat above about 20 degrees. So... I, I mean, I would be finished in the Far East. I certainly would not be attempting escape there. <laughs> Geography, so the distance is covered. I mean, if we're talking about hundreds to thousands of miles in occupied Europe, we're talking about many thousands of miles to be covered in the Far East. Um, so the, just the, the sheer scale of the distance to be covered was exponential. It was huge. And then finally, assimilation, uh, not to put too fine a point in it, the average Westerner is going to stick out like a sore thumb in the jungle of Burma. Well, yeah, you're, you're white and six foot five. Yeah. <laughs> this, this is not typical of, of, of Japan no. or Malaya no. or Burma. Exactly. <laughs> well, rounding us up then, Hollywood has given us the great escape at the top end, as we said. We love the film. And at the bottom end, it's given us escape to victory. Even a football man like yourself has to draw the line somewhere. (laughs) Yeah. What is the escape that should have been immortalised in a cracking film that we just haven't seen? So there's several I'd like to mention, if that's okay. But first and foremost, Vitulik and Jones, absolutely. 
these guys were in the SAS, they were captured, and because of the commando order, were handed straight over to the Gestapo. They were condemned to death and lined up in front of a firing squad with five of their mates. And at the point that the guard was about to shout fire, they legged it. That was the point at which they chose to escape. Yeah, I think just escaping from a firing squad is just so ballsy, but brilliant. And if that isn't a Hollywood film in the making, I don't know what is. Others I would mention would be Dean Drummond, Anthony Dean Drummond, who is the only person that we know of that escaped twice in the war. So he was captured in Italy, escaped and got back, and was then redeployed, sent into Arnhem, uh, was captured again in Arnhem, hid in a cupboard for 13 days straight, and eventually managed to get out and back to Allied lines. Uh, He went on to be one of the commanding officers of the SAS after the war. And again, just a fascinating, fantastic guy and fantastic escapes as well. Similarly, Raymond Shirk. As far as I'm aware, and I'm open to being corrected on this, only person who made both an escape and an evasion in the war. So he escaped, got back, was redeployed, shot down, and managed to evade capture and and sent down one of the evasion lines. Uh, Lieutenant J- David James, not the former England goalkeeper, but he uh, he made an escape attempt under the pseudonym of I Bugger Off. <laughs> and he came within a hair's breadth of success. So he was captured. He was Sorry, he was recaptured while trying to break back out of the docks, uh, having actually got onto a ship. We, we recently covered him. And actually, Erin Eve. So... The Escape of Erin Eve is sort of covered in the Colditz story, the film The Colditz Story, mm-hmm. but it's assigned to Pat Reed in re- in the film. And so Neve's life story is just utterly fascinating. It's it's incredible it's, and, and tragic, actually, in the end. But yeah. there, the 100% his, his life should be a film. There, there is a biopic that needs to be made. So they, if I was to pick out five, they would be the five that I'd pick, and I'd watch every single one of them. Uh, my, my only, and again, coming back to Rage, I have a real issue with Hollywood's obsession with rewriting these stories because, and this is where The Great Escape is very guilty, because these are fantastic stories. These are incredible adventure stories. They're exciting, vivid, true adventure stories. They don't need embellishment. They don't need the Hollywood treatment. Mm. They are perfectly good as they are. It definitely doesn't need a bike jumping a wire. As much as I love it, it is fantastic. These stories are good enough in their own right. Thank you very much, Dave, because that has dispelled quite a few myths and flattened a couple of my favourite movies, even though we still... You know, do love absolutely, but I do feel free for it. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more about this subject, you can start first and foremost by listening and subscribing to "For You, The War Is Over," and we will have a link to them in the show notes. Honestly, I am an addict for this. You should all be too, and you can and should also follow the podcast on Twitter at fywtio, and you can follow Dave himself at Dave McRobbo. And that's two Bs. So, Dave, thank you very much for bringing out, getting permission from the committee to bring this rage out. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thanks for having me on. So, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. I'm at Kyle G History. 
And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you are really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, it'll get you the invite to put questions to future guests, and of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. Thank you very much for listening. Until next week, stay angry. Bye bye. Bye. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness, and they come in five different flavors. They're so good wild berry acai grape pineapple mango lemon and mandarin orange my favorite is the wild berry because i just i just love a berry so if you're like me and you're drinking water all day then try splash refresher it's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you Acast powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.